Thanks very much, James. Please uh, keep that passage open, Genesis 15, page 15, and uh, that'll help as we go go through it together. Uh, Let's pray. A wonderful, wonderful word of the Lord. Lord, we pray that your word would be wonderful to us in our hearts and minds this morning, and that it would be, be at work in us by your Holy Spirit. And whether we know much of you or not very much at all, please speak to us. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what word would you use to sum up the whole Christian faith? Of all the thousands of words in the Bible, if you could just distill it down to one, what would that word be? Not a little sentence, not a catchphrase. One word. Here's an idea. Faith. Faith. Um, I'm reading John's Gospel at the moment with a friend of mine, not a Christian, um, using the word one-to-one resources. Massively recommend them. They're really good. And it's interesting how almost every time the conversation comes back to this issue, this matter of faith. And I actually asked him this week, I said, hey, I'm going to be teaching about faith on Sunday. How would you define it? Um, Here's uh, part of his um, response. He said, a flexible heart and an open mind the willingness to enter and experience the unknown. He's quite a thoughtful guy, as you can probably tell by those answers. How about you? How would you define faith? Perhaps for you it is a a positive and inspiring thing. Faith is taking the first step, even when you don't see the whole staircase. Martin Luther King. Or maybe faith in your mind is quite a negative thing. Maybe you feel quite suspicious about faith, even kind of morally opposed to faith. Religion is poison. It asks us to believe things without evidence. It then asks us to respect this, which it calls faith. Christopher Hitchens. Genesis 15 is one of the great Bible chapters about faith. In fact, it is the first time the word believe appears anywhere in the scriptures. There's been faith before, but it's the first time it's explicitly mentioned. And it's like the concrete laid for the foundations of the building. They're building a kind of garden room at the back of um, our next-door neighbor's garden at the moment. And this week, they've been laying the concrete. The whole thing has got to stand on that concrete. And it's like that, the Christian message. It's got to stand on faith. God's words to Abraham in this chapter, and Abraham's response to those words underpin so much of what Christians need to understand about faith today. So there is, in this chapter, serious and significant theology. So we're going to work quite hard as we think about that. But it's also a story. And God invites us to enter into that story ourselves and to enjoy it. It's it's said at a real time, 4,000 years ago, in a real place with a real man, Abraham. It's Pretty mysterious, as you may have picked up in the reading, but it's also full of meaning. Since we first met Abraham in chapter 12, he's always appeared on stage with other people. And events have happened over a few weeks or months or years, from one end of Canaan to the other, sometimes in a different country. But this time, the pace slows, and it's just one place, just Abraham, just two nights, just Abraham and God under the spotlight, just one word, faith. 
So whether this morning you're a convinced Christian or not, whether you feel strong in your faith or struggling in your faith, whether faith is a positive and inspiring thing for you or something that's actually quite suspicious in your mind, let's listen to what God says about it. And we're going to do that by looking at the two main scenes, the two nights in this chapter. First of all, first lesson out of two, when faith receives God's promise, it's rewarded with righteousness, verses one to six. When faith receives God's promise, it's rewarded with righteousness, verse one. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Well, we might be sitting here scratching our heads thinking, what is Abram afraid about? If you were here last week, you'll know that he just smashed nine kings in battle, just with a few hundred men. So we're thinking, what is he frightened of? But Abraham's answer, I think, reveals the source of his fear. Verse 2, but Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. So it's three chapters since, since chapter 12 when God promised Abraham that he would have uh, a great nation would come from him, possibly as many as 10 years. What's happened to God's promise? God may claim to be Abraham's reward, but it doesn't look like there's a great deal of blessing coming Abraham's way. I imagine it's pretty gutting when capital gains tax wipes out a massive chunk of an inheritance that you're due. And maybe Abraham felt a bit gutted like that from the other side. He's a rich man. He wants to pass on all his wealth, but a servant will receive his wealth, not a son. Eliezer's onto a good thing, but God's promise looks pretty pointless, doesn't it? What does God have to say about that? Verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son, who is your own flesh and blood, will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Well, whilst whilst, uh, writing the sermon, I learned that the uh, Bortle scale is the way that you measure light pollution. There you are. Just put that away for a pub quiz sometime. And London is a, a Bortle 9. That's the worst level of light pollution you can get. So you're not going to see many stars on a London night sky. But you, and the best you can get in the UK is a Bortle 2, like in Snowdon or kind of the Outer Hebrides or something. But you can get a Bortle 3 if you just go an hour and a half south to the um, South Downs. So maybe that's where you should do your camping trip if you're going camping over the summer. If you did, you would get a sense of the best, one of the best visual aids ever. So you're there an hour and a half away on the South Downs um, and you, you need to go outside of your tent in the middle of the night and uh, you, wake, you go out and you look up and there you are, just like from one horizon to the other, the sky is just pinpricked with stars, some bright, some dim, some sparkling, some static, and you think, goodness me, that is awesome. And um, you went out for the loo, but... Once you've gone to the loo, you think, I'm going to lie down on my back. And you lie down on your back and you try to count it. You try to suck it all in, try to drink it all up. And you think, I can't do it. It is too much. Well, that is kind of what God does to Abraham. He says to Abraham, 
Here you are, Abraham. Here's a challenge on your camping trip. Can you count them all from one horizon to the other? Have a go. See if you can count the stars. Abraham, you are not going to have one child. You are going to have offspring so numerous that no census could ever count them. It's an absolutely extraordinary promise. But is it believable? Or is it like one of those promo vouchers that slips out of your Sunday newspaper? 200 pounds worth of free wine, but you've got to sign up for like a year and a half subscription to get it. Or free kids' places on holidays to Spain, but just wait until you see how much an adult place costs. It's easy, isn't it, to be taken in by the kind of, um, taken in by the offer, but then stung by the small print. Is faith in God like that? Is it, as Christopher Hitchens said, giving up reason things without evidence? Is it something that is only for the gullible, but it turns out to be a con? No. Verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord, and he, that is God, credited it to him as righteousness. So a change happens inside Abraham's heart and inside his mind. Any doubt is replaced with certainty. The doubt is removed and certainty takes its place. Abraham doesn't believe without evidence. No, God himself is enough evidence. Abraham believed the Lord. Abraham realized that God's word could be relied upon, that God's word was solid ground that he could put his feet on. So Abraham believes what does God do? It's as if Abraham, God takes credit from his spiritual bank account and places a massive lump sum in Abraham's. He credited it to him as righteousness. He rewards Abraham with righteousness. But what is that, we might ask? Simply put, it is a right relationship, a fixed friendship between God and Abraham. I don't know if you've been following um, Wagatha Christie, you know, Colleen Rooney versus Rebecca Vardy, or um, uh, Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard. Don't those court cases just show you just how horrific it is when human relationships break down? We look at those and we think, there's no way that those can be fixed. But humanity's relationship with God makes those broken relationships just look like child's play. See, ever since Adam and Eve made a bid for independence from God, there has been a chasm dividing men and women, boys and girls, from their creator. But when God promised in chapter 12 to bless the world through Abraham, he said, I'm going to bridge the gap. I'm going to make a way across the chasm. And now in chapter 15, he shows us how. He shows us that when faith receives God's promise, it's rewarded with righteousness. What is it that bridges the gap? Faith in God's promise rewarded with righteousness. Rewarded with that fixed friendship, that restored relationship between God and human beings. But we might still be sitting here thinking, well, what is it exactly that Abraham believed? Yes, okay, he sits there on his camping trip and he looks at the stars and he thinks, okay, God's going to give me all these children. But we might be sitting here today thinking, what does that mean for you and me? God isn't making a promise to you and me to have children as numerous as the stars in the sky. How can I know that that's not just for him? Or how can I know that that's not just a con or a fantasy? How does it work for you and me today? 
Well, fortunately, Paul helps us think a lot about this in Romans chapter 4. Let me read a bit from that. Romans chapter 4, 18. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be, that's Genesis 15. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Do you see at the end there? Abraham was fully persuaded. He was rock solid sure that God could do something impossible from a human perspective. But what was that impossible thing? Look earlier on in that reading from Romans. He faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Abraham believed that God could keep his promise to bring life to a dead body. In this instance, to a retired couple who'd never had children before and who couldn't have children. He believed that to him and his wife, God could bring descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. He could bring life instead of death. You see, Abraham's faith and God's reward of it are just little pictures of the faith that we should have and the reward that God offers to you and me as well. Let's read on Romans 4, verse 22. This is why it was credited, it, it was credited to him as righteousness, Romans, uh, Genesis 15, 6. The words it was credited to him were not written for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. You see it. Genesis 15 wasn't just written for Abraham, no, but for us too. See, we also must believe that God can bring life to a dead body. Not to a retired childless couple, but to Jesus. See again on the screen, he raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And why did he do that? Well, Jesus died for our sin. He faced the judgment of death that we deserve, the broken relationship. But then Jesus was raised again for our justification. In other words, so that God could give us his righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' perfect relationship with his Father could be ours. And now we can experience that for ourselves. God gave Jesus life from the grave so that he can give you and me eternal life forever. It's the great doctrine of justification by faith alone. It says we cannot do anything to get right with God. We, God does it all. We believe the promise. God rewards us with righteousness. It is what the great reformers of 500 years ago rediscovered as they uh, looked at the Bible and, and tried to figure out what it said. For example, Martin Luther said, it is faith without good works and prior to good works that takes us to heaven. We come to God through faith alone. So can I just ask you this morning, are you clear on that? If you're new to Christian things, do you understand that, that you can't fix that broken relationship with God by your own efforts? Only he can bridge the gap. Only he can get you to heaven. 
Would you ask God today, say, God, give me faith in Jesus. I want to be rewarded with his righteousness. And if you are already a believer today, have we grasped just how wonderful that reward is, that righteousness? We know, don't we, that Jesus died for our sins and rose again, that we are right with God, but do we treasure that? Do we think there is nothing greater that God could give me than Jesus' own righteousness? And so today, this week, will we rely on him, not on anything we do? When faith receives God's promise, it's rewarded with righteousness. I don't know about you, but it feels a little bit to me like you get to verse 6 and you think, oh, that's the end of the, that could be the end of the chapter. It's like a mountain point. It's a high point. You think, why the kind of what feels a bit sort of dark and mysterious and weird for the rest of the chapter? What else does Abraham need to learn? What do we still need to learn? Second, when faith looks for certainty, it can cling to God's covenant. When faith looks for certainty, it can cling for God's covenant. Verse 7. God also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? So once again, God's, God, Abraham responds to God's words about himself and what he's done, what he's going to do with a question. Earlier he said, what's the point of your promise? Now he says, what's the proof? What's the proof of your promise, God? He believes, but he wants evidence, more evidence. Verse 9. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds of prey, however, he did not cut in half. Sorry, the birds, however, he did not cut in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. Apologies if you're a vegan or a vegetarian. Uh, later we are told, verse 18, that the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. So this is obviously part of a covenant ceremony. These dissected animals are some sort of symbolic treaty, meant to symbolize this treaty between God and Abraham. But why? What is this weird symbolism all about? Well, some commentators suggest that it's a way of symbolizing that whoever breaks the covenant will be cursed. For example, uh, here's an ancient text which describes how one describes a deal done when one ruler gives a city to another. Uh, it says, Aban, that's one of the rulers, Aban placed himself under oath to Yarim Lin, that's the other ruler, and had cut the neck of the sheep, saying, let me so die if I take back that which I give to you. In other words, if I take the city back, I should be like this sheep with its head cut off. So is God vowing to curse himself if somehow he doesn't keep the promise? Well, that might sound plausible, especially when we think to the New Testament and we, we realize that Jesus was cursed for us when he died on the cross. But I wonder if that's a, a bit too much, reads a bit too much uh, into, the, into the imagery. Because God never breaks the covenant, and yet Jesus still does face the curse. More likely, I think this scene is, is a never-to-be-repeated sacrifice. It's a little bit like we might say, don't worry, you're not signing your name in blood. But God is signing his deal in blood, making a covenant with Abraham. Because when faith looks for certainty, 
We can cling to God's covenant. Verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. This is the second night. We know that because birds of prey only fly during the day. So he's driven them away during the day. This kind of butchery happens during the daytime and then he falls asleep again. It's the second night of the vision and God speaks again. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and ill-treated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. You know, Abraham said, how can I know? And God says, you can know for certain. So he is reassuring Abraham about his promise, wrapped up in this dark and bloody imagery and language of a covenant. You see, look at those verses again. Abraham, you will have children, but they will be slaves for 400 years, verse 13. That's Egypt. Yes, they will, they will be rewarded, verse 14. They come out of Egypt with great possessions. They will possess the promised land. But only after God has used them to judge the people already living there and to destroy them, verse 16. Now, that's the book of Joshua. Striking, isn't it? That God's promise of offspring, of life, is wrapped up in such pictures of warning and judgment and death. Because faith isn't all sweetness and light. It clings to God when it looks like his promises have failed when they're slaves in Egypt for 400 years. It recognizes that sin has to be dealt with before blessing can be received. That's why the nations in the promised land were destroyed by God's people because it was their judgment day. Faith is never an easy path, but it is the path that God calls you and me to travel, his people to travel. The only path. Not because we can, he looks at us and thinks, well, they can conjure up enough faith in themselves to, to, to walk along this path. But because God will keep his side of the bargain. Verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants, I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. It's as if God walks down between those animals, down the blood path, saying, this is the path that I'm going to walk for you. He appears in fire. He solemnly swears to give the land to Abraham's offspring. In other words, this is unilateral. This is a unilateral covenant. It depends entirely on God and not on Abraham or his offspring. And then let's fast forward 5,000 years to around 1500 BC, and we see God again appear, don't we, in fire. This time on a mountain. And uh, he speaks to Moses on that mountain, and he gives him the Ten Commandments. And um, what God says there in Exodus chapter 20 is clearly meant to remind us of what he says here in Genesis 15. Just look down at Genesis 15, 7, and hear the echo of what God says in Exodus 20. He says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. 
So God brings Abraham out of Ur, God brings Moses and the people out of Egypt, and on each occasion he gives them a covenant. The second time he gives them the Ten Commandments, Commandments. he says, this is the way to live. But the bar was too high, wasn't it? Far too high for them, they could never keep that. Far too high for us, we can never keep that. God's perfects have beyond our reach. We need a new covenant. We need one like that offered to Abraham, a unilateral assurance that God will keep his promise, a cast-iron guarantee that, that he will reward us with his gift of righteousness and that we don't need to try to be good enough for God. And wonderfully, that is exactly the covenant, isn't it, that God gives to you and me through his son, Jesus. Abraham said to God, or asked God questions about children, and God spoke to him about descendants. And interestingly, both of those words are actually the word seed in the singular. It can be translated plural, but it's the word seed. Listen to Galatians chapter 3. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning, one, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, that's the Ten Commandments, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God, that's the one we're looking at in Genesis 15, and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Jesus is the great seed, the child, the offspring, the descendant of Abraham. He came to guarantee God's promise to bless the world. We can't inherit heaven by being good enough, by trying as hard as we can to keep God's law. Of course we can't. Jesus, though, he did it for you and me. And all we must do is believe. God saves us, you see, in his grace. His reward of righteousness depends on him and him alone. So Christianity isn't just faith, but it's never less than faith. Everything else is built upon it. It is the concrete, the foundation. And so, brothers and sisters, let's make this church always a place where we receive God's promise, where we cling to his covenant. When faith receives God's promise, it's rewarded with righteousness. When faith looks for certainty, it clings to God's covenant. Let me pray. Our Father, thank you so much that you have done it all for us, that you have made that covenant with us in the blood of your Son, Jesus, um, that he died in our place, and we can be rewarded with righteousness, his righteousness, his perfect, restored relationship with you, and we don't have to fear anything because in a way we are like those stars that we see on a dark night, innumerable. If we have faith in Jesus, each one of us is one of them. And we, say, we thank you so much for that. We pray you grow our faith. And pray for any here this morning who are not yet sure, don't yet understand these, these things fully, still have questions. We thank you, God, that you help us to understand. We pray you'd help us for Jesus' sake. Amen.